There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. Book of the Week, what you should be reading. What you should be reading this week is the book we're about to talk about, The Intelligence Trap by, remind me of the author? David it's Robson. David Robson, thank you so much. The dulcet tones of Mark Lomas there. He's one of our guest reviewers on the show today alongside Rachel Hamilton. Um, Rachel Hamilton is, of course, a children's author, avid reader and general delight. She's often, I am. I am. General delight. <laughs> She's often in the co-host chair. She's in the guest chair today. And Mark Lomas, also general delight, Mark, uh, lecturer in journalism at Middlesex University and freelance journalist who has written for the BBC, GQ, Esquire and more. So first thoughts on this book. Who, who would like to go first? Uh, I found it really interesting. I've got to say, I felt some of it I already knew and it was presented as new news where it really isn't because it's things that okay. I was talking about, you know, not me personally, but as in, in groups or in lectures 20 or more years ago. But I liked the way that there were specific examples given and there were, there were it was all attributed to who had said things and there were some new things. What I found particularly interesting was about how you can better teach children today. I found that whole, do you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, as, as someone who's teaching um, at university and teaching media students, it's it's particularly important, I think, to get those messages across of the, the best way and that also that people yes. learn in different ways as well. That's something um, that, that I took really from the book. But yeah, for me, it's, it's, it's a really interesting look at the idea of intelligence, which has kind of been rooted in one direction for the last 100 years, uh, which is all about IQ. And, you know, we are seeing, obviously, there have been studies over the years, people look at other aspects of intelligence in terms of rational decision making, emotional intelligence, but still, it always seems to come back to IQ. Um, this this uh, invention from 100 years ago um, in terms of the test. And I found that this resonated with me personally, because I when I was younger, I was intrigued with what my IQ was. My brother took the Mensa test when he was 15 and got 178, which is ridiculously high. So I was like, oh, well, I want to I want to take the test as well and see how I compare. I was also I was like 156, and I joined Mensa, got my mug. But what was what was the point, and what am I getting from that? And in terms of other aspects of my life, I I didn't know how to change a light bulb or anything like that. So I'm not practical in any nature in in any way. Even now, you know, my wife is very much the practical one in our relationship, and I'm not. And it just got me thinking about this idea of intelligence manifesting itself in very different ways. And the fact that you can be intelligent from what what might be more of a traditional perspective doesn't mean that you are more intelligent than someone else real in Ar reality. Arguably, it almost means you're less likely to be practically intelligent, I would say, because we were ch Mark and I were chatting about the fact that both of us were academically very smart. And yet, if I say to anyone now, if I give my kind of roll call of qualifications, you know, Oxford, Cambridge, nobody believes me because I behave <laughs> as if I am probably less intelligent than the average person. And I do think it's like it took me eight tests to pass a driving test. I still can't cook. I can't do anything practical. And I do think that there is a disconnect. And I think if you are good academically, you are often weaker in other areas. And I think that is interesting. And I don't think that's something that's always acknowledged. I think it's, um, it's an understanding that um, what do you need to live your life? You know, I come back to to your point that, you know, it's a very narrow test of different types of abilities. But um, 
when I first came to Dubai all those years ago, I was thrown in and thought, my goodness, you know, if they put me in the middle of the desert, I'd get lost and I'd probably <laughs> die because I had no sense of direction. I couldn't navigate by the stars. I also couldn't fish and I didn't know how to skin or gut a fish or do all of these other things, which were actually quite essential in, in Dubai in the 1960s. They were much more necessary than they are today. And it is things like... Um, uh, you know, can you change a tire? Can you change a, you know, do you know how to do a plug and so on and so forth um, that that we may need in everyday life and it's changing all the time. You know, what do we actually need today? Um, and I've always thought that knowing how to sew is is essential. Male or female, I think, should know how to sew. Knowing how to cook a meal, I think, is essential um, because um, we need to eat and why why would we not know how to eat so so what what message are we sending out to our children if we are not giving them all these other parts whether they're boys or girls they should all have those same things um and um it's not where you measure on the intelligent quota that determines whether you're going to be successful or not i think importantly it, it's not just about practical you know practical intelligence they're talking about here they're also talking about things like cultural intelligence emotional mm -hmm. intelligence and interestingly what you said about you know moving here and the, the challenges that you face actually you know they explore the fact that people who live in other countries and live an expat life inevitably you absorb things and you become more culturally intelligent you become more tolerant you become more aware mm. of the way that different cultures operate and there's actually something important to be said about that particularly in the workplace um one of the things i saw uh, there was a singaporean uh, lecturer soon ang um and she did an experiment she put all these fantastic brains from southeast asia together to work on something and found that they didn't actually work very well together because there was a lack of understanding that, you know, someone from Singapore would operate differently to someone from Malaysia, to someone from Indonesia, to someone from Japan. Um, and the idea that actually, you know, building cultural intelligence, particularly in the workplace, if you're going and working, is, is another facet that is very important. Yeah, that was something in the book, it talked about super forecasters, these people that they'd found who were the best at predicting what would happen next, which arguably is a really useful form of intelligence. And one of the things they measured, I think there was the fact that people had often lived abroad. So they'd got this cultural expectations of the fact that people, when they were solving a problem, went outside of the problem and read widely and looked for parallels in other areas, which was interesting. And one of the key things was the fact that these people would admit they had been wrong before. And so they were quite quite likely wrong again and they were happy to change what they thought based on each different bit of new information that came in and I thought that was quite fascinating. I think that's one of the key facets of the book that looks at people who are who are highly intelligent and often this uh, intellectual arrogance pervades that people aren't willing to admit they're wrong and that's why you get people who are, are very intelligent you know have um, tremendously successful academics but there's like there's a gap in their knowledge there in terms of the way the world works. There's a fantastic example, I think, was which was Paul Frampton in here. I don't mm -hmm. know if you saw that. Yes. So Paul Frampton, the physicist, Bless him. <laughs> um, who um, he's worked on experiments that have gone to the Hadron Collider. You know, he's this is a really, really smart guy. Um, but he got involved in online dating. He found someone who uh, he fell a bikini in, model, a bikini <laughs> model who showed an interest in him and fell in love with him. Um, he travelled to Peru, uh, to Argentina, I think it was, yes. uh, to see her, or to Peru, sorry, to, to see her. Uh, she wasn't there. She left a bag and a note saying, uh, "I've gone to Argentina. Can you bring, bring this? Bring my bag. Bring my bag to me in Argentina." <laughs> oh, yeah, um, never met her. He never met her, and then he obviously he took the bag, couldn't find her, ended up going to Los Angeles, being stopped, and he was carrying contraband 
um, into the airport. And even even after it was proved that the person had been fake and the person hadn't happened, he was still saying, I want to see her. You know, why is she not? Why, I need oh. to see her. I need to talk to her. I need to explain what's happened. That was yeah. That's a remarkable story. The story is that even after all that, he he's still saying that she trick. wasn't real. Yeah. 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 But then we have Sir Arthur Conan Doyle um, and his well. sort of his huge interest and belief in seances and he and Harry Houdini fell out with each other because, um, uh, you know, Harry Houdini was just so frustrated that he was so sort of gullible. And I think um, he says, Houdini says, the greater a brain a man has and the better he is educated, um, the easier it has been to mystify him. And obviously he was a, he was a, um, a person of, of uh, Houdini of, of great stage presence and things like this. And he was saying, how can someone as supposedly intelligent as um, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle be taken in by all this frippery? It's, it's, that is a fantastic story, and I love this idea of Harry Houdini and Arthur Conan Doyle like meeting and discussing the world and trying to put the world to rights. But this idea that you have Arthur Conan Doyle, who is a, a doctor who created Sherlock Holmes, who is the has the perfect reasoning and observing skills. You know, he's the perfect individual in that regard. Um, and then you have Harry Houdini, who wasn't very well educated. He left school at twelve. He's an escapologist you expect them to have very different worldviews to what they actually have. And actually, it was Harry Houdini who was calling out um, Arthur Conan Doyle and saying, you know, your, your views, think, just think duped. about it. Yeah. Think about it. And By himself. That was what yeah. was interesting. Yeah. There's a great and quote it, from a psychologist who says that um, Conan Doyle used his intelligence and cleverness to dismiss all the counter arguments. Yeah. And he, he was basically so clever that he managed to outsmart himself with his smartness. Yeah. <laughs> my, my side, he calls it, um, uh, the author, David Robson, calls it my side bias. And so it's how highly intelligent people will swing arguments and, and sort of prove their points by, you know, spurious or dubious things. But because they're so they believe in themselves so much that they can convince other people too. So do you remember the story about the, the pictures of the fairies? Oh, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, you know, Arthur Conan Doyle really, really believed that the fairies fairies were real. You know, he wrote extensively on the fact that they were real. And he, you know, he came up with all sorts of theories around electromagnetism, how these fairies could have been created, mm-hmm. how they could be sustained. And he was using his intelligence and his wide knowledge to, to build a, a fallacy. And then, you know, it's a shame he, he died before he could find out that the girls did admit that the pictures of the fairies that also they'd the taken were staged. Wasn't there, there was one point I mentioned where they'd put a pin in the fairy to keep it in place. Yes, and he used his, his reasoning to say that must be the belly button of the fairies. <laughs> Just how far you will go because you're entrenched in a position. It's how it was attached to the gnome in the womb. Yes, yeah. <laughs> oh. brilliant. Oh. Brilliant. I mean, this book, The Intelligence Trap, um, says on the back cover, there are certain types of mistake you are more likely to make if you've got a high IQ. This is the intelligence trap, a revelatory idea that will change how we work, learn and think. So, Mark, are you going to change how you um, work and think, having read this book? Um, in a way, yes. I, I actually like to think that I do do some of the things that he suggests here, which is... Uh, as someone who is working in journalism in particular, and I'm teaching my students about fake news a lot, and that comes up a lot in here, how people are duped by fake news, because it's about the the, the fluency of the argument and the familiarity. They're the two words I think uses. So if it's presented in a good way, and it's presented in a way that you're putting the words together and you're thinking this could be real based on other experiences that I've had or other things that I've heard, uh, that's how people fall for fake news. So I spend a lot of time actually in my classes 
with my students, testing them on whether a story is fake or not. So we, we, have, a, we have a session on fake entirely based on fake news. I'm just giving them a series of um, examples of news stories that are real and news stories are fake because it's really important that them as the future, you know, the future journalists, that they understand where their sources are coming from and, and what they can trust. But we're seeing that happen more and more. And I think particularly in America, there's the, you know, they're looking at this idea of making people more aware and it's me creating a media awareness in people from a young age, getting them to understand what is a reliable source and an unreliable source. Um, but yeah, I like to think that because I'm a journalist and I'm naturally inquisitive, if I see something in front of me, I do want to, I do want to think of the other side of the argument and I do want to find out whether why should I believe exactly what's written in front of me. I would prefer to do my own research as well and see if I then agree with this person's argument. So I do feel like I do that. I'm, I know that I 100% will have other blind spots as well, but this is what I'm encouraging people to do. On the point of education, one of the most fascinating things for me is that uh, the way in the West that children are educated is leading them to fall into the intelligence trap. It's to put your hand up quickly and answer the question, not always think through. And uh, he compares it to the style of education, say, in somewhere like Japan, where people, children, have to discover things for themselves rather than learning, rote learning and um, not being given a chance to question, to slowly absorb that knowledge. And I found that it really did make me think. And uh, they do have an intelligence uh, quiz, which um, I will come to before we end the programme, just to see where everyone is in terms of... I may um, leave. <laughs> I feel my brow is sweating. Yes, I, I, will just, I will just say that I failed every single question either i'm incredibly stupid or i'm incredibly intelligent and i i i you I'd know go with the incredibly uh, intelligent <laughs> no i don't think so and it, it tests different types of intelligence about how you answer it but it is that for me it is that thing that in western education put your hand up and answer quickly is the rather than the person who sits back and thinks through and then can often come up with a, a completely different view. See, I'm the one who sits back, thinks it through and still gets the wrong answer. <laughs> he, he, the recommendation in the book is if a teacher takes just three extra seconds when they've said, put your hand up, then those three seconds will allow even the child that puts their hand up quickly to think more and develop their answers more, which is quite an interesting and simple recommendation. But, but actually also um, one of the things that's discussed in the book is how it's okay to get, get things wrong. And actually getting things wrong is, helps your learning far, far more than getting things right because you remember more your errors and the errors, are, the errors are burned more into your long-term memory. Yes. So then when you know the right answer and then when the right answer comes on the back of that, it's actually going to stay with you for a lot longer. So it does encourage making mistakes and it encourages failure as well as part of it. And that's the, the, the good example that I use in, I the, in the Japanese classroom. Um, two things, making bread and cooking rice, um, you need to do both lots and lots of times until you perfect it. And there's no, you can't, you can't just read about it and then suddenly you know how to cook bread properly or how to cook rice properly. It is, it is a process of doing it time and time again and watching and absorbing. And I think that's the same for many things, that um, if you want to knit, if you want to learn any skills, um, you need to do it lots of time. Learning to read, it's not an overnight, you suddenly look at a book and then you can read and it's quite a painful process. So um, 
Uh, I mean, in that it's not enjoyable as when you can read. So I think it is absolutely, he's really hit the nail on the head. And I think for educators to read this book, you are both educators. So I think it's fabulous that we have you on discussing discussing this book. Now, as I mentioned a bit earlier, um, there there is a quiz on his website. And I, 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 did, I did try it all. And I said to you, I, I, I got them all wrong, completely wrong. So I'm going to ask... Um, uh, Okay, I'm going to ask um, Rachel, all right? (laughs) All the pressure. If you have only one match and you walk into a dark room where there is an oil lamp, a newspaper and wood, which thing would you light first? So there is newspaper, a piece of wood and an oil lamp. Yes. I guess you'd light the thing that would stay lit longer to allow you to light other things so the piece of wood I'm sure it's wrong you probably it's need, wrong. To, light, need to light, light, light the match first oh there we go you need to light the match before you can light anything light the match light the match okay let's find one for um, let's find one for Mark Emily's father has three daughters the first two are named April and May what is the third <laughs> daughter's name Emily Good, good. You would have got that one. (laughs) Okay, a farmer. Here you go. Another one for you. A farmer had 15 sheep and all but eight died. How many are left? Eight. Yes. (laughs) See? See? Okay. (laughs) It's like a proper competition now. Getting quite on edge. (laughs) And it gives you... I'm two one up, aren't I? Yeah, yeah, you are. Okay, all right. So those are for intuitive. Okay, those are intuitive types of questions. Let's move on to logical questions. Okay. I'll fall down here, I'm sure. Okay. Okay, we'll start with you then. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I like it. uh, Premise one, all living things need water. Premise two, roses need water. Conclusion, therefore, roses are living things. No, well, it it doesn't account for... It doesn't account for no everything else. No is the correct the answer. Yeah. No is the correct answer. I'm fortunate because that one was in the book. So. Okay, okay, okay. <laughs> but I have okay. remembered it, so that's okay. good. Okay, all right. Um, can you reason scientifically? I'm going to ask um, Rachel this. An experiment is conducted to test the efficacy of a new medical treatment. The results can be summarised as follows. Treatment given... So those that were part of the, the, the experiment to treat them, improvement 200%, 200 and no improvement 75. No treatment given, improvement 50, no improvement 15. Does the treatment work? You'd have to know other things like how they were to that's begin not, with. That's not... Is that it, not it's allowed? Ratio, no, it's, it's not ra- allowed. It should be, be ratio-based. it maths? Yeah. It's uh, it's the ratio base. You're on the right thing. The answer is no, because the ratio of the no treatment giving given is higher than the improvement and no improvement so on those treaties. It's about looking at the figures. This, yeah. it, you know, the last time I was in the studio, we looked at factfulness, yeah. and yeah. it's the same the same idea that you need to try and look at the bigger picture rather mm. than just being being uh, lured by the figures that are there. So. Okay, I'm going to ask Annabelle one from the intuitive ones. I'll try and find the most difficult. And that's about all we have time for. <laughs> Suddenly, it's all finished. <laughs> okay. Um, the wind blows west. An electric train is running east. In which cardinal direction does the smoke from the locomotive blow? No idea. Have a think. Have a think. It involves navigation. I'm already panicking as yeah. well. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Rachel? Was it the wind blows west? Incorrect. 
the wind blows west, an electric train uh, run east. So, therefore, no smoke. I mean, no smoke without fire. Correct. <laughs> smoke and mirrors. So it's again, it's all, it, it's all about these like associations that you have without actually sitting down and, and rationalising what the answer would be. And people, uh, you know, people fall into this trap all the time. One of the other things that I really encourage at, at university level is reflection, and that's something that the book talks about a lot: is self-reflection and cognitive reflection. Even if you think something is a certain way, take a step back. Why do I think this? What other points of view could there be? And the more that you consider those other sides, either the stronger your argument will get or the more you'll see holes in your argument and actually maybe you would view things another way. I always found that that's, I think, partly why I was always better at tests and exams was because it was written down and I had time to consider it. it, But in class, if someone's asking me... I just it's There's an interesting bit about that, about why people... Because sometimes you feel really stupid in meetings and it actually gives a scientific reason why some people are more stupid Tell in meetings. And I found that really interesting. Basically, what it was saying was that they've done studies, kind of MRI studies, on people's brains, you know, just to see how they operate. And for certain people, not for everybody, but when they are put into a meeting with other people, the amygdala, which is the emotional response part of the brain, suddenly starts firing. And when that is firing, it means that... What's the part that's more to do with reasoning? I've forgotten. The bit of your... I'm not a brain scientist, but the bit of your brain that is working better for reasoning works less efficiently because your amygdala is fighting so much. And so what happens in that meeting, you're so busy responding emotionally to the fact that there are people around, perhaps you feel judged, perhaps you can't think about what you want to say, that you actually physically for that moment become more stupid. And so there's a kind of rationale for not necessarily employing the particularly brilliant, arrogant people and then putting them in a meeting with everybody else because then you lower the general intelligence because all these people who are a bit more sensitive become utterly stupid because they feel under so much pressure. So this is what I like about the book a lot is that it, you know, it delves into the psychology um, for the first half, but the second half is, is kind of more about practical steps and, and how, with this information that we have, can, can we ensure that uh, we encourage people to grow and cure encourage curiosity in both children and in ourselves as well and also the way we put teams together you know it's it talks about it talks about it from a sporting perspective which I, I loved which is this idea that you put five incredible basketball players into the same team and which Miami Heat did in the early 2010s and it, it didn't work mm. because you have too much talent together. You need to have a blend of people at different levels who have different strengths. I love the Briggs-Meyer sort of personality test and how you put teams together and how you need different strengths um, and different abilities within any team. But I think um, one thing that is when you're making a decision, so for example, if you've got to make a decision, it's always a good idea to sleep on it. Because if you've been in a meeting and people are saying, oh, we have to do this, we have to come, let's vote on it. Sometimes it's a good idea for everyone to go away where your emotions are put in one side. But also the very act of sleeping on something allows your brain to free up and maybe be more analytical in those moments and come back then. And so I think sleeping on things. Julie sent in a wonderful quotation. um, Tell me and I forget. Teach me and I remember. Involve me and I learn. Benjamin Frank- Franklin, lovely quotation. Thank you, Julie, for that's, sending that in. That's very funny because I was just looking at my notes um, about Benjamin, Benjamin Franklin and he's someone who's pointed to as um, a real kind of beacon of reasoning um, and someone also who was willing to admit that he made mistakes with things that he thought earlier on in his life. Uh, later in life, he admitted, you know, I was wrong. Um, 
but one of the things he talks about is having moral algebra, which at its most basic level is like us writing a positives and negatives list. If we're trying to decide whether to do something, we look at two sides. But he went a step further, which is you rank the importance of your positive and negative list mm. and you try and create that balance between fi to, to find what, what is the solution you, you're after, mm. basically. But when yeah, he's pointed to as the beacon. One of my grandsons, um, who's seven, did this thing at school about want and need. And they all had to work out and, and think about what they wanted in life or what would, you know, and what they actually needed. And it was really a really interesting thing about um, him starting to think about, you know, what's essential and actually what is nice to have. And I thought for a seven year old, that was a great thing to do at school. Great thing as sort of... Um, we, we are unfortunately going to have to leave it there. I mean, I feel like we could talk about so much more with the intelligence trap by David Robson, but we, we can't on today's show, but maybe we can we'll have to come back. We'll have to come back. <laughs> yeah, I can thoroughly recommend it as yes, something definitely. to really something get your to teeth you think. into. Um, also, and it's really entertainingly written as well. I want to emphasize a very easy that. Read, yes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's not he it's not heavily academic in any way. I'm really, it's a very accessible book, and that's what I really like about it as well. Um, so, the Intelligence Trap by David Robson is our recommendation, our book of the week on talking of books. Thank you so much, Rachel Hamilton and Mark Lomas, for joining us in the studio. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com.